Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie. And on this episode, we are doing the 57th Best Picture winner, Amadeus. Amadeus is a 1984, what I have seen described as biographical film. I have a protest. I do too. Protestation here. (laughs) We'll explain a little bit about what our protest is in a minute. Um, But it is directed by Milos Forman, who on the podcast we would know from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm, I see that parallel. Yep. Yeah, it's very clear once you know. Um, And it is about a fictional rivalry between composers Antonio Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It is adapted by Peter Schaefer from the 1979 stage play of the same name, uh, which I feel like with this one... I'm sure the stage play is great. Uh, how could it hold a candle to this editing and the way they I know. use film? <laughs> I just well, just yeah. <laughs> the way that they use the music in the film too. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm this the film benefits uh, the film benefits from being able to have like a full orchestra and stuff like that. So I'm sure the stage play is delightful. But I think, I you know, having never seen it, I'm gonna say maybe this is a case where the adaptation is like the one. However, that stage play is not the first time that the Salieri-Mozart fictional, supposedly, rivalry has been adapted in media. So the idea that there was this like rivalry and animosity between the two of them actually was first popularized in an Alexander Pushkin play in 1830. And in that play, Salieri actually like murders Mozart on stage. I'm here for that story. That would be interesting to see. (laughs) Yeah. And then that was later made into an opera. And then later there was a silent film in 1917. So it's actually kind of a myth that has been uh, used quite a bit uh, to create drama and entertainment, which is something that both Schaefer and Foreman were actually very upfront about. So going back to that, it's sometimes called a biographical film. It's not really biographical. They were both very upfront about we're here for the entertainment and the drama. We are not here for historical accuracy. Yeah, because let's be clear here. All of that stuff with Salieri is not nearly as salacious, nor is any of it substantiated. (laughs) So there's like the whole thing where he takes a vow of chastity. In real life, Salieri was married, had eight kids and at least one mistress. So (laughs) not quite. But I, to me, that makes the film less biographical, of course. And it's really, I would put it more in the realm of fantasy, especially with the way it's shot and like edited. Mm-hmm. In in some ways, I'm getting, at least in my mind, Sofia Coppola's uh, Marie Antoinette. Like I get like little vibes of that here and there in this. So yes, that movie is beautiful eye candy. And so is this. So <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, and I, you know, we say this before every film where we, that includes like historical figures. Of course, when we're talking about the film, we are talking about these people as characters in the film. I think that's kind of highlighted by the film itself in some ways this time around. Like it's not really pretending to be historically accurate or a true biography, um, but just reinforcing that like we always do. This was nominated for many awards, and it won many awards. <laughs> Milos Forman won for Best Director. F. Murray Abraham won for Best Actor. He plays Salieri. I think a well-earned Oscar, for sure. Tom Hulse, was, who plays Mozart, was also nominated for Best Actor. And 
I feel like in any other year, like he wins, but F. Murray Abraham, they're so they're both so good. They are. And the thing is their their characters are so different and the way that they played their characters is so different. I struggle to actually compare the two because they're great. Just great. Yeah, and I I don't know, obviously, what was on, like, the Academy's mind that year. I think it probably comes down to Abraham's performance of old Salieri. Like, the bits where it's just cutting back to old Salieri as he's telling the story. Mm -hmm. And, like, the way he's talking about the music and, like, picking it apart to the camera, I think, is probably what pushes him to be the winner. Yeah, and I, I'm still left with, even though it was the last scene, him blessing all of the m- mediocre p- folks in the asylum like that. That is peak F. Murray Abraham in this film. Yeah. Peter Schaefer won for Best Adapted Screenplay, one for Best Art Direction, one for Best Costume Design, one for Best Makeup. I'm No surprises there. Was nominated for Film Editing but did not win. Was nominated for Cinematography but did not win. I think both of those went to The Killing Fields. I haven't seen it, but I'm very disappointed about the film editing piece because that was one thing that really stuck out at me as being superb, especially when uh, the way that it kind of flowed with Mozart being in the zone and the editing was in the zone. It just, uh, it was great. I agree. I agree. I have not seen The Killing Fields, though, so I can't really compare. Um, It also won for best sound, obviously. Like, obviously. (laughs) No questions. (laughs) (laughs) Other nominees from that year, The Killing Fields, A Passage to India, Places in the Heart, and A Soldier's Story. Last thing I want to say before we jump into kind of going more into the film and picking it apart is that we did both watch the director's cut. Unfortunately, we were not able to track down the theatrical version, which is what we wanted to do. However, I have before me on my screen a list of the differences so we can highlight them and I a little bit of a spoiler. I do think this is a case where the movie benefited from a director's cut later, just based on what I'm seeing was added. And, and let's be honest here. It what 20 minutes of runtime was added in the director's cut. Like that doesn't feel excessive in this movie, especially given that it didn't feel long. No, not at all. But there are some key scenes that like were included in the director's cut that when we get to them, I'll talk about. But I was kind of like, that got cut from the theatrical version because otherwise some things later in the film wouldn't have made as much sense. Mm, good to know. So just, I want to put that out there in case people are like wondering what we're talking about on certain parts or, um, you know, it definitely probably influences our ranking, but this was the version we could find. So... Maybe in the future, we'll track down that one and do a full comparison. (laughs) We'll keep an eye out. So shall we? Into watch notes. We shall. So the opening. I just love the drama of this entire film. So like the the strong chords of Mozart's music in front of the... What what were these two random dudes bringing like sweet rolls to Salieri? Like, I don't know. I don't know, but... The minute they were like, we brought you dessert and we're going to eat it all if you don't open this door, I would have opened the door. (laughs) Yeah, but you don't have the guilt of Mozart's death on your conscience and you're not trying to actively... Oh, wait, really fast, before we get into this any further, um, the central character is uh, 
did try to commit suicide. So we will be discussing that maybe a little bit, but just wanted to let folks know that uh, it's a topic. Trigger warning. So it will be pretty brief at the beginning. Yes. So with that out of the way, yeah, you would open the door, except you have the guilt of Mozart's death and you have tried to commit suicide. So you are on the floor in a pool of your blood. I think I could get up for dessert. I'm just saying. Uh, but we do actually start off with like, like again, it's dark, but there is a little bit of comedy at the beginning, uh, which I feel like sets the tone throughout the movie. Like, you know, it really is a movie about like, you're watching these two people just deteriorate throughout the film. Um, and something that I found really interesting about it is that it really is a film from the point of view of the villain, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. So you kind of, delve into like the psyche and the background of the villain and why is the villain the way he is. But at the same time, I feel like the movie never lets him off the hook. I'd agree. It's not like he's ever given forgiveness, even at the very end. And the fact that he, he leans into his villainry. Is that a word? I may make it a word. It just makes it all the better. Yeah. So I want to, yeah, I kind of want to set that expectation because um, that was something that I I definitely noticed and really appreciated about the film. Because I think seeing the villain story and backstory is often interesting, but you have to be careful not to be like, oh, but it's a free pass for all of the shit they do later. (laughs) Yes. Um, Also, this is an example of, it's a little bit of a framing story. We have a little bit of a framing story. That you this liked. one works for me. Yay. This one works for me. I was curious what you you thought on that. I Well, it helps that they bring it in throughout the movie mm-hmm. in ways that are very important and that they do it at the right moments and that uh Abraham's uh acting is so good in it because we cut periodically back to older Salieri kind of telling this story to a priest because Mm -hmm. he is taken into an asylum and then you bring in the priest and that's kind of the end of our like introduction and we start diving into like backstory and the actual like meat of the story um but because they bring him back at all the right moments in between it works and because like at the end we don't really see anything that we already saw like it's not like they show us the beginning and then they take us all the way to the end and it's just the beginning you know what i mean yeah well and and for me to agree with everything you said i was not a hundred percent on board for maybe two-thirds of the movie but as we approach kind of the climax and eventual demise of mozart and like i said before that final scene of him leaning into being the patron saint of mediocrities like one that writing is glorious but him leaning into it made the rest of it work for me. And I, I don't know why. Interesting. I was pretty take. I, I will say, I think it did take me a little bit, but I was kind of in much earlier than you. And I think it was all based on like Abraham's performance. Um, because the first bit he does, he just gives us a little background on Salieri. He grew up uh, with a father who did not support him wanting Mm -hmm. to become a composer. I love the shots of young Mozart and young Salieri and they're both blindfolded, but Mozart is playing at like piano at a court Mm -hmm. and Salieri is playing a game in the streets with the other kids. But I love how they tie it together with the blindfold and he's already setting up himself as like this foil to Mozart from the very beginning. Um, But saying I respected him and I wanted to be like him. Mm -hmm. 
And they also hit really on his religion and his devotion to God in this. So his in, devotion in, for well, now. <laughs> but but I love it. it's it's even from the beginning slightly twisted. So it's it's all about hey God, I want to worship you. I will be chast. I will do all of this stuff for you if you make me a composer. And I'm like, does God horse trade like that? I'm not sure. Salieri thinks but... he does because his father <laughs> dies. And, and then Salieri's able to become a composer. So he sees that as a miracle. He sees it as a good thing. And I think here it becomes so much more blatant later, but it's the beginnings of showing us what a narcissist that character is. Like it is all about him. Of course, his father's death would be directly linked to like his prayer. Mm-hmm. And of course, God would be paying attention to him. He, he sees everything from his point of view which i think the film does a great job of also showing us stuff that he's not present for but somehow doing it super smoothly thank you amazing editing so that (laughs) we're seeing what's really happening and then we're hearing salieri's version of it It, it's a fun a fun technique they use but the the kind of end of salieri's getting you up to speed is him with the king King Leopold? Joseph II. Excuse me. King Joseph II, brother of uh, Marie Antoinette. Antoinette. (laughs) But my my favorite line here that really shows how he is blind to his own mediocrity at this point is where he was talking about how the king has no ear. But what does it matter? Because he loved his music. And I'm like, did you just do a cell phone right there? (laughs) Uh, But that writing is so on point. Well, and it's also, you know, Salieri cares about his own notoriety. Again, it's the narcissism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also love how the king answers every question with just a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love the little, mm-hmm, and then he'll, like, make a decision. Yes. <laughs> I think that was, I, I noticed that in the scene where Mozart's like, oh, please let me do the opera in German, um, or, or or whatever that. I, I think that was the scene. But such great comedic timing, even by some of the supporting cast, like um, I believe King Joseph II was played by Jeffrey Jones, or sorry, I thought Emperor he did great. Joseph II. Oh, yes, sorry. So anyway, now we do get an introduction to the illustrious Mozart. I love how this is shot. So we've seen glimpses of like baby Mozart, but it's very much like standard, like you can't tell anything about his personality. But they're at this big party, and I feel like this is really a turning point for Salieri Mm -hmm. because he's talking about how excited he was to meet Mozart, this genius of music. You know, he's already considering himself as, like, an equal, and he's sort of, I think, projecting a lot of stuff onto Mozart and has been able to build basically his own ideal. And I feel like he expects Mozart to be very much like him, to be very controlled. um, Because why wouldn't you be when you are blessed with this divine gift of music? He's done everything right, Ian. He's followed his vow of chastity. He gives to the poor. He does all sorts of stuff. Everyone likes him, Ian. (laughs) Everyone. And I love how we just see glimpses of like the back of Mozart, like, him chasing Constance through the or like through the crowd, and we just see bits of him. Uh, Salieri finds like kind of hides in that room, 
and there's the lovely shot of like the mm-hmm. servants coming in and putting stuff down and then leaving and the door closing and then you just see the handle slowly creep <laughs> as Salieri slinks in to like hopefully get an audience with Mozart who's not in the room. Stanzi runs into the room and is like they're playing a little game of chase. And I love her under the table, which my first thought when she started to crawl under the table was like, girl, you are not getting anywhere in that dress and that wig. Oh, do not underestimate Stanzi's ability to move her ass when she needs to. It's true. (laughs) Uh, But the shot from under the table where you see Mozart's feet and then him going towards it. And then we finally, there's like a little bit of a playful tussle between the two of them. But we finally get to see Mozart and he is nothing. Like what Salieri expected. I know. and I, you, He's a kid. He's exactly. a horny kid. <laughs> Credit where credit's due. Like before we started recording, you'd mentioned that they played these characters super young. So Elizabeth Barrage and Tom Holes both did. And I totally agree with you that that was the absolute right choice. And I mean, they're playing like stupid little games, like say my words backwards so that you yeah. know what I'm saying. Like it's so juvenile not i don't mean that necessarily disparaging but but they're playing the characters like like late teens to early 20s yeah who are like young love like and that's what they should be <laughs> yeah the thing that tom hulse does in this that i i kind of love is the difference between non-music mozart and music mozart though so he hears his music immediately snaps out of this like love induced whatever silliness silliness there we go (laughs) and it's like my music and sprints back into the main hall where where they're performing and that again just adding to that humor seeing him run from so far away like up the hallway and then he's like they started without me and it's like yeah dude because you weren't there yeah (laughs) but just immediately steps in and isn't in it and i think in that scene we're also introduced to mozart's laugh Oh, God. Which it could best be described as a bray. Uh, the subtitles call it a bray. It's just, just so you know. So good. I can't even I can't even try. Do you want to try? Uh, no, I do not want to try. This will be <laughs> like that time in uh, Young Frankenstein when somebody tried to imitate a horse. Um, um, and somebody did it very, very well. Excuse you. Okay, Salieri. <laughs> Rude! <laughs> oh, the look... actually if you want to know what Mozart's laugh is you can pause this podcast and either go look up a clip from the movie or go listen to our young Frankenstein episode (laughs) to hear me witty like a horse that's roughly the same sound (laughs) but I yeah uh, Salieri's reaction to that noise is he's revolted he absolutely is it's like the icing on the cake And there were many cakes in that room. Oh, there were so many. So he is late to this, but I love this like crisis that Salieri is immediately thrown into like, oh my God, I just heard this amazing thing. Now, again, with the editing here, they moved from that really, and cinematography for that matter, like kind of claustrophobic, um, kind of more chaotic style in the random, I'm going to call it the green room. I don't know what else it was to this very slow, reverent, uh, like, look about it as they kind of zoom out and show the crowd and show Stanzi coming in and all of that. So again, just emphasizing kind of the angelic nature of what Mozart has created. 
and using that in such stark contrast with his like non-music Mozart. Yeah. Um, and then I love where there's a little bit of back and forth because the Archbishop of Salisbury, who like is basically his patron, pays him to be part of his court, is like mad at him, kind of like upset, wants him back in Salzburg. Mozart's not here for that. And oh my God. Are you talking about the scene where he's getting applause? Yes. So they finish their little fight and Mozart's like, if you're not happy, just dismiss me. Like clearly he's not happy with the situation. He's like, just dismiss me. Just dismiss me. I'll stay here in Vienna. It'll be fine. And the archbishop is like adamant, like, no, I'm going to send you back to Salzburg. And when Mozart opens the door after basically being told, like, you will do what I say. And the crowd is just immediately applauding him. And then just going back and throwing open the door so the archbishop can see it, like being, I am more important than you say I am, and I have more power than you think I do. And then he takes a bow, showing his bum to the king, emperor, whatever his name is. It was just delightful. And again, you have such a clear picture of the Amadeus version of Mozart. I think after this section, we kind of cut back to Salieri talking a little bit more about kind of this budding jealousy of Mozart. And there is a line that I don't think is actually included. I think this was in the director's cut and not in the theatrical cut, but I want to highlight it because I really liked it. And that's where he's saying, you know, how could this bumbling, disgusting idiot have possibly created something so beautiful? It must have been an accident it must be a mistake he's like god because salieri early on is like god speaks through music Mm -hmm. and he i wanted him to speak through my music so he's like how could he possibly be like be speaking through this man's music like it, it has to be a mistake it can't be real and i feel like that's the first time where you kind of start to see that salieri's jealousy of mozart almost isn't about mozart at all it's about his relationship with god his belief that something is owed to him Mm-hmm. and a jealousy that not just that Mozart has talent, but that he has such great talent and seemingly from Salieri's point of view, at least has not had to sacrifice for it. Right. And this whole time I'm thinking to myself, Salieri, if you haven't already discovered life is not fair, my it dude. Is not. <laughs> in fact, you're better off than the majority of the people that in that Vienna city. Like, calm down. <laughs> Even Mozart, arguably. I know. Enjoy your cushy time as court musician, sir. (laughs) Who cares if they play you in 70 years? He does. Because remember, he played his tunes for the priest, and the priest didn't recognize anything except Oh, my God. I love that piece. And then he starts to play another tune, and the priest is like, oh, yeah, I know that one. Did you write it? And Salyer just stops. And he's like, turn that knife. That one's Mozart. So we get several scenes here, which I love for how they characterize Emperor Joseph II. Because <laughs> we start introducing this idea that there are too many notes in Mozart's music. <laughs> I... <laughs> and really, it's just because notes. Emperor Joseph in this movie is adult. No, I think he really loves music and wants to be musically talented, but just doesn't have the knack for it. He has a terrible ear, to quote Salieri. We have this scene, and we've also kind of set up that there's a little bit of like a nationalist faction in Joseph's court, at least from like the art standpoint, where you have a lot of Italians like Salieri, who are very much like Italian opera is superior. 
Mm-hmm. And then you have kind of this more German nationalist element that's like, hey, shouldn't we produce an opera like in the language of our country? Like there aren't really German operas out there right now or like there aren't really any like big ones or notable ones. Mm-hmm. And they're bringing in Mozart to see if he'll like write an opera for him. It's like almost his audition sort of to be a part of the court. Mm-hmm. Salieri has written this very simple composition for the king. I wonder if that's where the too many notes is thing too. If like he's listening to it and he's like, oh, I couldn't play that. Well, There's too many notes. I could have sworn it was one of the advisors had heard something that Mozart had written and were telling the uh, emperor this. But I mean, that that does come back later too. Probably a little bit of both. Because yeah, he's not the first person who says it, although he does say it later. But the emperor is like concentrated, laboring over this very simple piano piece and then you have, oh God, I, Tom Hulse is so good in this. Again, like playing it like the overexcited kid. Right. Where he's being led in to speak to the emperor and he keeps trying to like get a glimpse around like the very patient footman that's leading him in. And then he's held in front of the guards and he's like looking through their spears. Like, t- and like Tom scratching Hulse's, his calf. It's, uh-huh. His it's physicality so just adds to that kind of juvenile aspect to him, especially in this part of the film. And he continues with it, but in a totally different way as you move further down into the into the movie. Yeah, it's like the character never quite loses that like excitement. But as the character gets older, it ch- it changes into something less charming Mm -hmm. which is what is expected given how the film goes so yeah but then when he walks in and he bows to the advisors first and then they're like oh no 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 that's the emperor and he turns over and you can see the look on his face as joseph is like very concentrated on this (laughs) very simple tune not playing it very well and he's kind of like oh dear yeah i do this this is i i think one of the we kind of started down this path with Salieri, but this is the start, in my opinion, of the massive downhill piece. I feel like up until this point, the relationship between the two could have been salvaged. Yeah, I'd agree. I feel like here's where it becomes Salieri's obsession to like take this man down. Because Salieri's an idiot and decided to throw his hard, like, fought, like, this is my baby. Look at it. And Mozart's like, it's fucking ugly. Because he flat out, flat out is like, oh, what? Oh, what was it? Oh, no, I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> Funny little tune. It was that. <laughs> and so that's so biting. He says something about Salieri's music. He's like, oh, I know your music. I've done like a couple variations on some of it. And he like names one of the pieces, which Salieri is like, oh, I have your respect as I am due. And then he says, it was a simple, like funny little tune, but I fixed it or something like that. Very, uh, yeah, something good came out of it. It it was so backhanded. (laughs) Well, and there's another point later in the film where Salieri basically begs Mozart to make fun of him again. Like it's one of those things where I was like, don't, don't ask this man your opinion if you're not ready to see receive some very plain criticism because he's not going to have a light touch. Like, this is not the person to be asking if you have an ego. Yeah, let's just say Mozart is not known for his subtlety um, no. in this film. <laughs> I would never, it's like, I don't know, like, I would... If you're afraid to hear that, it, that it's your piece is bad, this is not the person you need to be putting it in front of. No. But I love 
how this really, for Salieri, hammers home the idea that Mozart is just a genius at work because he takes this droll march and turns it into something fantastic and like... Just like on the fly too. Yeah. And then they ask if he wants to like take the sheet music. He's like, oh no, no, I've already got it memorized. Yeah. And that's how that whole thing starts. And like, you can see the realization happen in Salieri's mind that's like, oh... I can't. God is speaking through this man. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't an accident. I cannot compete. Right. And then we have, I believe it's the first opera that Mozart does. Yes. But getting into the first opera, we start with a lesson with the leading, I'm going to call her the prima donna of the opera and Salieri. And, but I'm Cavalieri. Yes. And so you can tell she is super interested because she's like asking these not so veiled questions about like, tell me about Mozart. And he's obviously not pleased with this and is like, oh, God, it's a harem. It's going to be so um, gauche. Like there's not a place for you in this. But they do this multiple times where she is singing and it immediate. Well, is she singing? Don't know. Anyway, it cuts to her in the lead role in Mozart's in opera. Mozart's new play or new <laughs> opera. Yeah. And so uh, this kind of is the start of that. When Mozart is on and working and doing his best, you get this fluid, like, jaunt through all of his work as he's, like, getting inspiration and then then showing it on stage. And probably, like, some of the most famous scenes from the music, they do a lot of showing both him and Salieri at some points conducting for these operas. And I feel like the most famous shot from the movie is him and that, like, pastel wig uh, yeah. very exuberantly conducting. He is always a very like animated conductor and you can really just see like the passion and almost the like madness to the character. But in like this first one, it's a very upbeat, happy sort of like madness. And then by the time we see the final conducting, it is manic. He is exhausted. Mm-hmm. It is it's not something of happiness. It's something of pain. And like, I loved how we saw that transition throughout the multiple operas that we do see. We Mm -hmm. see like four or five um, of his, and then there's like another couple of Salieri's. And then also the difference between him and Salieri's conductors, it very much reflects their personalities. Oh, for sure. And like Mozart pouring his heart out. Whereas Salieri is a pale shadow. Yes. Now, two two comments on the musical part. I am super impressed with how well, well, I, I shouldn't say this before I know if Tom Hulse can actually play piano that well. If he can't, he faked it the really best well. that I've ever seen. <laughs> like, and I, I think even the kid prodigy that they, uh, that acted for young Mozart, like was playing that violin or at least looked like it. Anyway, I was yeah. impressed. The conducting a little bit wooden. Ian, that's not critical. what it's about. It's about it pulled the me out of the illusion. <laughs> it's about the exuberance. I was in it because I, I feel like he's not con- he's not actually conducting for the orchestra. Like that is him. Yeah, he is letting his emotion out. <laughs> yeah. So wrapping up that that opera, it's like huge success. But this is where, oh, Emperor Joseph, bless your heart. <laughs> I I think I have a note that is like this is not the venue <laughs> to give this criticism. Again, too many notes. 
he's like, there were too many notes. And I love that Mozart's like, I don't understand. There were exactly as many as there needed to be. <laughs> what do and, you mean there's too many notes? Oh, God. And he throws it back in his face with like, uh, when he says to remove some, he's like, so which few did you have in mind? Yeah. <laughs> Such sass. That is the point where previously I wasn't like on Salieri's side or anything, but I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I get it. Mozart's annoying. But I feel like this and like his interactions with Stanzi are where I started to be like more of my, more of my sympathy will sit with this character than other characters. Mm-hmm. Not that the Mozart character isn't wonderfully flawed in ways that both parallel and contrast to Salieri, <laughs> thus giving us a beautiful narrative of great uh, character foils. But um that was definitely where I started to be like, oh, I'm hearing this story from the villain side. That is our very Victor Hugo-esque protagonist. <laughs> and, that, and I say that meaning stuff is not going to go well for him. As <sighs> stuff does not go well for many a Victor Hugo protagonist. So. We basically meet Stanzi as his fiance. It's very clear that like. She and he and her mom are not what this court thinks of as like the paragon of Viennese society. Uh, We get the jealousy of Madame Cavalieri, which I think that scene actually in her dressing room was added in the director's cut as well, which again, I think just adds layers onto the character of Salieri because that's when he is like, it, it was clear kind of earlier on and in their lesson that he definitely like had a thing for her, but was like, I can't because of my bargain. Well, he still can't, but if he can't have her, no one can, because that makes Pre- sense. Previously, he thought it was his choice. This is where he learns that she would not be into him, um, or at least wouldn't be now that Mozart's on the scene. Okay, also like, sorry, Salieri, just no. There's also no evidence, like nothing between... Mozart and Madame Cavalieri's interaction versus his interaction with Stanzi would make me be- like lead me to believe that they are actually having an affair. That like maybe it's just something Madame Cavalieri's like going for. But Salieri immediately is like, no. Yeah. That asshole. Well, and it it goes back to how he's viewing this story. So like right. there may have been nothing. There but- may have been something, but whether there was or not, Salieri's now believes that absolutely there was and he's furious about it. So this very public, like I'm engaged, whatever doesn't go over. Well, his dad has to basically bail him out. I thought his dad was not happy about it. And the emperor was like, you're like 26, dude, maybe you should marry who you want to marry. Yeah. But it was like the public, like, Oh, we're engaged, but haven't gotten any permission to be engaged and or married. And all. And I think that's when the the emperor is like, Dude, just maybe get married. <laughs> well, and it wasn't the emperor. It was, uh, who was it? It was a different, was it Count Hieronymus von Colredo? Maybe, it doesn't Prince matter. Archbishop of Salzburg. We're pretty up sure on it this. was him. <laughs> it does not matter. <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it puts some strain on his relationship with his dad. We see like his dad opening a letter. Yeah, because he gets married. Before his dad gives permission, which is like apparently a big no-no. I didn't know. That's interesting to me. We should talk now about Salieri's sabotage. So the first thing that Salieri does is he basically plants this rumor 
that Mozart can't be trusted around women so that none of the nobles will hire him as a music teacher for their daughters, which was one of the primary ways a composer could make money. There is a position open for the like someone to be the tutor of the emperor's niece for music. Mozart really wants it, but Salieri fixes it so that like you have to submit samples of your music, which Mozart has a little bit of a diva fit about. And us and Stanzi are all like, dude, just submit your music and get like, you'll get the gig. Yeah, but there was some uh, like undertones of you might not because the music board is arguably completely unqualified. Not completely, but arguably biased. Yes, yes. It's it's that it's biased because I think he's like, it's all the Italian composers. Like they already don't like me because of the whole opera in German thing. And they're not going to let that happen. So Stanzi takes it into her own hands and decides that she's going to do something about it. And this is actually the scene where I w- was very impressed by... Barrage. Yeah, Elizabeth Barrage. I forgot what her last name was. Um, but yeah, this is where I was very impressed with her um, because she comes in, she's got all of Mozart's sheet music and she starts by saying like, oh yeah, he just asked me to drop it by. Like she's wearing a fantastic hat. The hat game in this film is <laughs> chef's kiss. Can we just point out for a hot second that Mozart and Stanzi are set apart so starkly from pretty much every other character with these costumes. So like this, and they're put in blue a lot mm -hmm. and it's just clear who they are, or they have a a wonderful flamingo wig on while they're conducting. I just, the, the line about when Mozart's wig shopping, I wish I had three heads. Yes. So he could wear all three wigs. So all fantastic wigs, Um, which that seems also very important because it sets up like this man will spend which is why Stanzi is oh, like, yeah. well, we need this post because one of them has to understand how finances work. Um, so she brings the sheet music, tries to play it off like he asked her to. Salieri kind of picks that apart. Salieri looking at the music and being like, oh, you know, thank you. And then her being like, I'm going to need those back. Like, because one, he doesn't know I'm here, but two, those are all originals. Which Salieri's like, you mean he doesn't like make multiple copies. He's looking at them. He's like, there are no signs of like big corrections. Like he basically put down what Salieri already has said multiple times is the best music he's ever heard from brain to page. I'm jealous of the brilliance. So is Salieri. Very, very jealous. He just like drops the music on the floor. And I love, okay. So I, to, to be candid, I'm working on getting over the stylistic choice to make Stanzi and uh, Mozart extremely contemporary in their delivery and accent. I liked it. I actually really liked that people were not forced into an accent because I think most it's very rare that the accents are actually good when you do that to people. And I thought it gave the actors freedom to really like emote with the dialogue. Um, so I was here for it. And again, I also consider this movie a fantasy and not an actual historical piece. Yeah. Well, and and I think the, the biggest thing that is pushing me in the direction of I am here for it is it's another way that they are kind of set off as the new guard of everything, really. Like, not only is it their their costuming, it's also their delivery and, and all of that. 
I love that idea. Well, and it also makes sense because a lot of the operas that Mozart's writing, like, we'll talk about it in a bit, but the big stuff around, like, Figaro's marriage, like, that's a middle-class play. Like, that's not upper-class. It's about real life. It's not about, like, as, as I think he says, like, the heroes and the myths. Right. So, no, I love that reading. I didn't even think about it that oh, way, but that, that's that great. Was, yeah, 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 yeah. I, that, that is really kind of how I, I saw it through the whole whole film but i love when he drops all the music just in like because he's so astounded by the genius and stanzi just goes is it not good (laughs) and then she just calmly goes and picks it up and you have the score come in as he's reading through they do this all the time just weaving in the score perfectly and that's what i also consider very much like a fantasy element Mm -hmm. and then i like when he drops it the score just out but but her like nonchalance picking it up and being like okay I'll come back tonight. This is this is where Salieri like makes the major turn, where he was basically insinuating that she needs to return some sexual favors so that he will put Mozart in favor with the emperor. So that last bit of the scene and the one we're about to talk about are not in the theatrical cut. The theatrical cut is rated PG. Director's cut is rated R, pretty much because of this. I think it's an important scene, though. I think it's really important because I think it absolutely solidifies his villainy yeah. and it explains some stuff later down the road, including the last thing Stanzi says to him. I'm here for it. And you still could have done it with a PG rating, I think. Yeah. But she has to come back. It is clear that Salieri is conflicted about this, which I'm like, yeah, you better have some fucking you guilt about this. You created the like- situation, <laughs> asshole. Like... But again, I think the the way that Elizabeth Barrage played this was just so matter of fact. Like she's made the decision because you can tell when like he basically lays terms that she is like, oh, God. But by her coming back, you're like, that's how bad they need this money. Yeah. And this is where I'm, I'm really torn. Either I have like a preconceived notion of what the character of Stanzi should be feeling in this, or it just felt like Elizabeth Barrage's playing of this was like very nonchalant and like zero emotion. But like thinking on it more, I'm actually really a fan of how she did this because it's like, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to like it, but we're going to get through it. Like it's a very, I had the same reading. Like it's, it's very much a, there's almost like a false front. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to push through. Yeah. But so she starts to undress. Salieri gets unnerved. I don't know if he necessarily feels guilty about the situation. I don't, I didn't see it as him feeling guilty about what he was asking of her, but him having, because again, he's a total narcissist and I, doesn't like I don't think he ever once thought about what this was doing to her or what it would do to like Mozart well he did think about what it would do to Mozart that's why he did it but I he's having some sort of crisis and so he rings the bell to get the servant which is just like humiliation upon humiliation like she had already decided to go through the humiliating thing because like it's just piling it on I'm it does not lend to his character but we already knew he was the villain No, but I think this very much solidifies it. And like I said, I think it really explains some reactions later, especially like Stanzi's hostility towards him. For sure. But this is where we also have the scene. This is where Salieri fully is like, no longer God is testing me. 
he is like, God hates me and therefore I hate God. Again, he presumes so much. He presumes again that this is all about him. Like he, that, that an all powerful being would take the time to pick him out of all people on the world to like mess with and go against. It's gotta be like some all power that is messing it up for him that refused to give him the gift that he deserved and instead gave it to this person. Like, I don't even think he sees Mozart as a person. No, Mozart is a vehicle or an instrument of God. He's an obstacle. Also that. But this is where we, we have Mozart's father comes into town. And then this is also where Salieri starts to try and sabotage his operas. Yes. With his father in town, one, unannounced. And the way that the soundtrack switched as soon as we see his father up the stairs in the cape. The black cape. That looks a lot like that character from Don Giovanni. Hmm, Um, Could there have been some (laughs) symbolism? Glorious. And I don't know for sure, but I bet that score was from Don Don Giovanni, right? I meant... Did you know? No, I'm going to be honest. I know big Mozart stuff, but I am... Well, sorry, I'm about to make people mad when I just called Don Giovanni not big, but I'm not super familiar with his operas, so... How dare you? Sorry. I do know the one uh, tune that was played at the vaudeville. Magic Flute? Yes, Magic Flute. So, and Lacrimosa. That one makes me cry every time. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, don't don't laugh at me. <laughs> so he, his father is very clearly like a meant to be the reality in Mozart's life at this point. Because it's clear the house is not cleaned. Don't, doesn't have the the money to like have maids or servants or all of that. So it's like this, I don't know, tension between kind of this old guard appearances guy and Mozart and Stanzi's way of just, we're here, we're going to do. He's also clearly a lot more conservative. I He's like, at the same time, a sinister and somewhat benevolent figure. Like it's it's very clear that they have a complicated relationship, which I think both the actors handle it very well because you get the, I I feel like I understand exactly what their relationship is without it being harped upon. Yeah. He, the father really does genuinely care for Mozart's well being, and not necessarily. Well, I don't know. You paraded your child around the continent. Maybe you do care a little bit about your own like standing, but I'll lay I think that aside. He cares about Mozart's well-being, but in his mind, success and well-being is a very narrow field. Mm, yeah. He struck me as very puritanical. He even looked very puritanical. Um, yes. Well, he dresses very similar to Salieri. Mm-hmm. They both dress darker tones, very plain and conservative, as opposed to the pastel explosion that is Mozart <laughs> and Stanzi. But also... Really mad at the dad who later gets upset that the house is dirty and he's like taking it out on Stanzi. And I love when she's like, hey, fuck you. Also, she's pregnant. Like, maybe you could help your pregnant daughter-in-law a little <laughs> bit. Like, instead of just chilling in a room, oh. eating all their food. No, 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 Maggie. The original sin was not being able to afford a maid. And when just shows up, which I am, I do think he, the father-in-law is not wrong when he's like, we don't know who this is and who sent her because the maid shows up and is like, an anonymous donor is going to pay for me to be your maid. And the father-in-law is like, that's a little weird. And Stanzi and Mozart are like, sweet. But this like leads into such an interesting 
I, I love this kind of espionage take that Salieri has all of a sudden gotten in on because she is the in. She is able to tell Salieri about them going out, is able to give status updates of whether Mozart is working, like all of this stuff. What he's working on. Mm-hmm. She's the one who lets him know about the marriage of Figaro. Also, there is the whole bit where um, they go to the party. They take... Uh, oh, this is where Salieri like, gets his ass handed to him and is like, I will kill you, Mozart. I want to highlight the costume. The co- They very much pay attention to the costume that the dad has put in, mm-hmm. and it's the like two-sided mask that's like a hood. It's black, and it's like a very kind of expensive expressionless to sinister face on the front, but there's also a matching one on the back. And then it's got like the tricorn and the big black cloak, very much setting him apart from the other, other reveler revelers. And then that is going to come back later. That look will come back a couple of times later in the film. And this is really where like he and Mozart have their falling out. Cause they're playing musical chairs and Mozart, or I think first Stanzi loses and her, quote unquote punishment is she has to show her legs scandal okay it was the 1700s maggie you would not have shown your legs i'm showing them right now okay well harlot mode activated let me let me turn my chair (laughs) but when it comes to mozart's turn and he needs to have a punishment his dad is like fuck this i'm done we're going to salzburg Right. And so then Mozart's punishment becomes that he has to like play a piece on the piano and then he has to play it upside down and backwards. And then he has to play it it in the style of Salieri. Well, first (laughs) it's the style of Bach. And then he's like, okay, give me another. And people are calling out composers like Handel. And he's like, no, too boring. Ugh, disgusting. And then Salieri, you motherfucker. Like, you fucking know. You've listened to him trash other composers. He trashed your own work. In your presence, to your face. <laughs> what do you think he's going to do behind your back? Salieri's like, play Salieri. And he absolutely makes so much fun of him. And it's spot on. He plays it slow and plotting and simply and is like making an awful face the whole time and then pretends to fart at the end. Like, Salieri, again, I ask, what did you expect? <laughs> this is called lying in the bed that one has made. <laughs> Like, you know that's not going to go well. Why would you ask? So then he decides to start sabotaging the operas and using the information that his spy has gotten him to try and get Mozart thrown out of court or something. Well, killed. Because this is, I, I actually really do love this plan. He's like, I'm going to make Mozart write his own funeral music and then literally work him to death. Like, this is such the sinister plan. That is like the final offense that pushes Salieri over the edge and is like, fuck it. All bets are off. Mozart, you're mine. Well, and at the beginning of the film, the whole reason the priest has been brought in is because Salieri claims to have murdered Mozart. Which I will again point out that's such a narcissistic way to view it. I but. I love that, right? Is that like he thinks that like he and he definitely contribute like to some of it. Like it is he is definitely a person who like hamstrings his success at court and that's going to hurt him financially and leads to a lot of other problems. But like Mozart's alcoholism and like his over expense and stuff like that. Like those are aspects of Mozart that Salieri has no control over mm-hmm. that like also make the situation worse. So like 
he kind of uses his own traits against him. But like also Salieri, that's the big thing to be like, I murdered him. I'm like, did you stab him? No. <laughs> but he, it's like, it's like he did and he didn't like, but you're right. It's a very narcissistic view. So two major compositions are really set up in the the latter part of this film. So the first being Salieri's plot. After Mozart's father has passed away, Salieri shows up in that costume that Maggie mentioned earlier with the two faces asking for a requiem. So apparently Mozart actually did write the requiem like for an anonymous donor, like an anonymous patron, but it was just like some count who was really sad his wife died. It wasn't Salieri in disguise as his father. But like, I also, I was like that somebody took that from history and was like, now we make it our own. Mm-hmm. But it's just the the insidiousness of not only a salary like, haha, I'm alive, he's literally going to steal this requiem as his own. Which you're going to fool no one, but that's fine. We'll leave that alone. Well, and he's, yeah, he's like, you know, Mozart's little coffin, because Mozart's very short in this big cathedral and you'll hear the music swell and it's the requiem for the great artist composed by his dear friend Antonio Salieri. Again, he wants the notoriety. He's going, he's going to kill the thing, become the thing. Like he's going to steal Mozart's gift basically. Uh, Yeah. But they will say about him that it was an accident. Like he said about Mozart. So did you think it through? (laughs) I think that that's, kind of highlights this other like insidious part of his plot because like yes he's made it impossible for Mozart to get hired for private lessons he's going to start hamstringing his operas but every time there's something about one of the operas when Mozart will come to him he I love that Salieri can't lie about how good Mozart's music is like there's the whole thing with the marriage of Figaro Salieri is the one who like lets the king know that he's writing that which it's a whole thing because it's based on the French play that was like criticizing the upper classes. And of course the emperor's sister is Marie Antoinette. Okay. Can, can I just say for a minute, you cannot boil the French revolution down to Figaro. It's the single play. Ian. that's what did it. That's it. If that play had never happened, French revolution. No, sure. <laughs> sure. No, I do love that. It, it, the big thing is it's like, in my mind, art and media is usually not the catalyst. It's, it's a reflection of, it's a reflection of like these angers and anxieties that already exist. Yeah. And ooh, I shouldn't call it a symptom because that is like. It makes you sound like a despot. It, it, you, it Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like all of this, this pain and displeasure and discontent, like being funneled into something that is like beautiful creative. and productive yeah. and creative yeah no I, I know exactly what you mean so joseph's like no mozart comes in and he's like it's about love and it's mm-hmm. about all of this and he his passion for the story and the music is he's describing he's like let me just show you how it will begin and we use that to cut into the play again when mozart is on it is this swoosh into the actual play well it was the rehearsals at that point but still like, we get to see so many like opera performances and rehearsals and they're all great they are maybe you want to go to the opera so we get that opera we get don giovanni as well figaro figaro goes off well there's the whole bit that still just befuddles me about no ballet in my opera <laughs> from the king which i spent like 10 minutes just being like i don't 
I okay. don't, this baffles me. Again, I think Emperor Joseph my, II. My roommate was finally like, you have to move on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, He's I adult. Googled it. He's adult. I Googled he it. Know. And I was like, was ballet really not allowed in opera? And I didn't, just from my brief reading, um, I didn't find a definitive answer, but he did not like ballet. Well, he liked it with Mozart's music, so. Oh, my favorite part is the way that they get him to allow it is basic, basically the censors come in and are like, no ballet in an opera, so you have to just take out the music. So then the emperor comes by a rehearsal. This scene was hilarious to me, which is why I'm talking about it in depth. Oh, it's hilarious. It is hilarious. So he sees them rehearsing the like marriage of Figaro dance scene, but there's no music. And he's like, what, what is, is this some like weird modern thing? I don't like it. The sound and- at this scene. Cause you're hearing instead of this glorious Mozart score, the shuffling of the dancers feet on the stage. Yeah. And like- it looks, it looks so weird and bizarre because there's no music. And finally the emperor's like, well, then put back in the music. And then we cut to seeing the performance with the music and it's makes all the difference. But we find that Salieri thinks he is don't know if he is the mastermind behind only having a couple performances now granted apparently it was a four hour long musical and again the king being an idiot can only pay attention for an hour <laughs> so <laughs> yawned ian and i i do like the the salieri commentary over this breaking down like depending on how the king many times the king yawned like mm-hmm. if he yawns three times like no performance after opening night. If yawns twice, you're on for a week. Yawning only once, now that's that's okay. You're on for a month. Well, no, yeah. he was like, he's on for, and then Mozart cuts in with nine performances. Like, yeah. it was so great. I have seen Marriage of Figaro. It is good. It is long. So Don Giovanni, I think, is the next high point for me, at least, in this. So it's another... This is after the father has died. Yes. I think. And so the father dies, and then I think this is where Salieri implements his plan right i don't know if salieri had a hand in killing the first musical but he definitely had a hand in killing don giovanni because he's like it only played five times but can i just point out for a minute they were able to film and edit together this amazing depiction of the commendatory scene in don giovanni well in the way they shoot the character is reflects it or it like reflects the way they shot the father at the top of the stairs with yep. like the billowing cloak. as he's coming through the wall. It's just such a beautiful Ugh. parallel. And you get the voiceover of Salieri. Yeah. Salieri understanding. And you are absolutely right that this is when he implements the plan, not before. So my bad. <laughs> no worries. But I, I love when you hear and F. Murray Abraham does an amazing job because like there's a lot of voiceover. You're also cutting back to him as like old Salieri, but the way he talks about the music and like breaks down the brilliance for you. But there's also, there's like a reverence and a frustration as he does. So, and again, I love that he goes to every performance. Mm -hmm. We see him kind of hiding in the box and he talks about Don Giovanni. He's like, it only ran for five nights, I think, or something Mm -hmm. or five performances. But he's like, I was there for every single one. His ability to recognize the genius and then his just anger and madness over the fact that it is so beautiful. Yeah. I am not by any means well-versed in opera, but I do want to like, the the performers that they picked, I think in this particular scene, it was John Tomlinson, Richard Stilwell, and Willard White. Like, the vocalists themselves killed it. And then the 
actors who I think weren't singing based on how the credits were put together also killed it. So it's like just the, the feat of being able to put together this scene is is just so impressive to me. We mentioned that it won for like art direction and makeup and costuming. Like just just watch the op, op watch the opera scenes and you'll fully understand. Like it's because yeah. they put together so many different performances. Like it's incredible, absolute eye candy. So those are the the first two operas. We get this kind of really sweet scene with uh, I I thought it was sweet. I don't know if you thought it was sweet uh, with Stanzi. They're now kind of gr- more grown up, like four to five-year-old child and Mozart watching a vaudeville interpretation of Marriage of Figaro, right? Pretty sure. Or maybe or it was it like- Don Giovanni? I thought it, it might've been both because I, I could have sworn the end of Marriage of Figaro was in the end of that vaudeville, but it was like a Fantasia on It's a va- Yeah, it's a vaudeville spoof of like his own opera and he's loving it because I love that Mozart is loving that. Like he's like, I'm not too good for this. And there's actually, okay, it's when they're talking about the Marriage of Figaro and he's kind of being like, why does it all have to be about like the myths and stuff like that? And he says, I am fed to the teeth by these elevated things. And I just thought to myself, this is how I feel about so many Oscar winners. Give me more farce, more comedies where my, it happened one night, where my Tom Jones is like that line spoke to me. And I like the idea that like Mozart is the musical genius and he's so good at what he does, but he is not a gatekeeper about his art necessarily. He does, he will criticize and he will do so very plainly and with no filter, but he's not necessarily <laughs> like, he's not gatekeeping from like a social status standpoint or something like that. The way that like a Salieri or a Salieri is, which is kind of ironic because it, I wonder if you could extrapolate it to it's, it's the mediocre who feel the need to gatekeep. Probably. Because Mo- Mozart has never expressed needing, I mean, with the exception of like, how dare you gatekeep my own music in, when it was talking about the instructor. Yeah. He is the best. He doesn't feel the need to be the best because he just is. Right. So the biggest thing for me that came out of that scene is the motivation to write a new tune for this vaudeville company. And so immediately they really show the contrast in Mozart's kind of, I want to do this for the music, but Stanzi's very practical. We kind of need the money. Um, Cause she wants someone's got to be practical in that. Area. Well, and it's not going to be Mozart. Let's no. be clear here. And so the leader of this troupe is offering him, you know, a bunch of the house to actually do this play. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really help them live now. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, put the money in my hand. How much are you going to give me now? And that's when we get some more off-color humor about putting things in hands, which I <laughs> thought was great. I, and I think it's very calculated to show that they still do really love each other. Mm-hmm. But that there is strain in the marriage. And, like, Stanzi's grown a little bit in ways that Mozart has not. Right. So, broadly, I think the next bit is we really are seeing the devolution of Mozart. So his alcoholism is worse. You, He's not wearing, I, I love how they do this. He's not wearing his wigs and his hair is crazy. 
So like that's a very clear descent into this madness, and and, and in it's my mind, a look from like all the portraits and shit. Exactly, that you see <laughs> it is like yeah. the classical like staring up at the camera with crazy hair. It's it it's great. Um, there is Stanzi leaves and takes the kid at one point, and meanwhile he's he's already been Salieri as in the form of his father's ghost has already come to like get him to write a requiem, which is very Hamlet-esque. Although maybe if Hamlet's dad's ghost had just asked him to write music and not just kill everybody. No, Hamlet would have still ended up killing everybody. Let's be honest here. The Wrong episode, wrong episode, sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought that up though because I did get massive like King of, Ham- King, King of Hamlet, wow, King of the Netherlands vibes when I saw it's Denmark, in sweetheart. the outfit. Excuse me, that other country in that part of the world, <laughs> Denmark. I, oh boy, it's been a long day. Denmark, King of Denmark. I'm so sorry. We have uh, Mozart or Wolfie, as uh, Stanzi likes to call him, goes to visit his mother in law, who, as she's like kind of laying into him about, like, you know, I told her to go to the spa, like, you need to take care of your wife and kids, it starts to overlay the music from the magic flute as he like starts to get this inspiration for the play for the vaudeville. And then that cuts into the performance. And here's where we get, Oh, it's so good. This is where we start getting his, his last conducting. Mm -hmm. And it's so different from the first time. Like there's still the energy. He's in a wig again, which is really important because it's like, he's back in the driver's seat of his life. He thinks. Yes, but it's not the same and it's not enough because like some of it's it's more of a desperate conducting instead of just a jubilant conducting now. Uh, so huge props to Tom Hulse for uh, just showing that difference. And I loved that like symbolism for the character. Salieri is still there. Oh my gosh, of course he is. Because he, he has like this massive hard on for Mozart that he cannot show anybody. But like that physicality you mentioned, like when he's playing the little glockenspiel piano thing, like the way he he comes in right on time is like in it and then is immediately out of it, kind of like lulling back in his chair, lolling, no, lolling black back in his chair. There is an O in that word. <laughs> it's such a masterful performance of this like extremely sick, but so in it and to some extent desperate character. Yeah. He collapses. Salieri immediately, it's such an interesting, like, war you kind of see in Salieri in that moment, right? Like, this is what he wanted. Like, he wants Mozart dead. But he also is, like, his gut reaction is to, like, go. And I'm almost torn between, like, is it because it interrupted the beauty of the opera? And, like, there's no denying that Salieri genuinely adores the music or is it like a the requiem isn't done yet my plan i honestly think that salieri is like let me make sure the job is finished and that the reason i say that is he is committed to his plan even when the vaudeville performers come to like check on mozart because he's like no he's fine give me the money and then being the the double agent he is is like here's the money from the man in the mask yes because mozart thinks it is him he's like it's, right it's him tell him like i it's not done yet or that i'm not here 
But I I love the idea that like Stanzi is still on his mind because he's like, but ask him if he can give me some now because he does know that it's, it's important and that they need the money. Yeah. And this is the part where I'm like, okay, he has like 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%, 1% bear with, I, bear with, I bear disagree. With. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I say 1%, I should probably make it like half a percent because half of it is very self-serving. I was going to um, say, I think what I know what you're going to say and his motives are completely selfish though. It's the like dictating his music yeah. down. Yeah. Because even yeah, yeah, if yeah. you said it's because of his love for the music, like that's still very selfish. Oh, hundred percent. I still see it as, and this is me projecting my own feelings onto this, where I'm like, thank God this got written down, at least in part, before he died. Because we get to listen to it. So pretty. The scene, let's just talk about the scene of them basically compose, or of Mozart composing and Salieri taking the dictation. Just my favorite scene in the entire film. A hundred percent agreed. This is, I just was blown away by uh, Holson Abraham's performance in this. Like they're both so absolutely incredible, <laughs> and the set that the sound Oscar, this is it. It I is. I mean, it's been doing. They've been doing great work the whole movie. This is the scene, and it comes down to. I know we hammered on this in our Raiders episode about how all of the different components need to like come together and do work, and that is what happened here. Because not only are we getting this beautiful, impeccably timed editing between the two parties in the room editing we get at every time mozart talks about a line of music that needs to come in we get the sound of that one line from the requiem played over top so you're hearing but they don't drown him out i like that they don't drown him out you hear him like poorly singing the part because of course he's like sick as a dog he's pale as hell like Makeup but he knows what it will sound like. He knows what it should be. And I love when he's dictating it. Salieri's befuddlement is Well, perfect. I love that he can't quite keep up. Like, he'll be like, wait, wait. He says it multiple times. You go too fast. You go too fast. But Mozart will be like, no, it starts in here. And then it's going to go to like A minor and da, 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 da. And Salieri like, sits there and he's like, okay. But you can also see that he's just watching in wonderment as he sees the genius work. Yeah. And then also you have Mozart's desperateness to just get it out. and. Ugh. But you hear, after all of the parts are written down, the entire piece. And I got chills, and I teared up, and it was glorious. And it's I great. do love how they're like, okay, we have to finish the Lacrimosa. Because that, again, I think, and this might be horribly pedestrian, really don't care, favorite part of Mozart's Requiem. Like, it's glorious. So good. But anyway, they have to take a break and it's Mozart finally being like, oh, we can take a break if you want. And then basically having to say like, I'm tired. Yeah. Which he was up all night. Like you see, oh, oh. And the one thing that we have not mentioned yet with the editing is how they are showing Stanzi coming back from whatever place away from Vienna she was in and so the way that that was edited in with all of this back and forth between Salieri and Mozart and the individual parts and the music just the drama of it all is so good Uh, she arrives they're both napping and her reaction to Salieri is again because of the scene that was added back in the director's cut I feel like if this scene if like they had not put 
back in the scene earlier where they actually like have the confrontation, I feel like her reaction to Salieri would make a little less sense because Salieri has not really revealed himself as a villain to Mozart. Like Mozart even says like, you're the only one of my colleagues that came to see the magic flute. Like Mozart thinks he and Salieri are good. He was like, yeah. Oh, I didn't think you liked my music, but I, he wasn't like, Oh, I thought you were going to murder me. Like, <laughs> no. So I feel like you genuinely kind of need that context to see like why Sanzi is so upset that he's there because she knows him for the villain that he is. Yep. And she's like, you need to leave. And he's like saying he won't leave. I love the, I apologize that we have no servants to show you out because their servant had quit at one point because she was like, that household is too chaotic and I'm scared. So at the end of the scene, when she's trying to get Salieri out, she's like, okay, well, you won't listen to me. Will you listen to Wolfie? And Wolfie is dead. Oh, and Stanzi, I do want to note too, Stanzi also took the music and put it in like, put it away. Oh, so yeah, like, she's like it's Salieri does him. not have his hands on this. And it's also not done. But the fact that it's not done and they were talking about needing to do the lacrimosa of the portion, they immediately cut into it when he's dead. And that that just Well, and then chills. the funeral is nothing like what Salieri had described. Like he had described it as like this huge grand production. And it's not it's very simple. They, you know, the crowd is pretty small as the uh hearse drives by. They it's one of the coffins where the bottom's like a door because they would really just slide the body out and reuse the coffin. It's a shared grave. It's in this small little cemetery outside of town. Like it's none of the production that Salieri had envisioned. But the set design and the costuming were doing so much work in this yeah. scene no, it's- with them looking out of the gate of the city. But the actual burial of Mozart is so tragic in this film. Now, I will say, in reality, it was not nearly this tragic. It was definitely not lauded. And I think he had the same situation. And he died very young and very mysteriously, which is part of why there was like so much room to be like, oh, it could have been this. Mm -hmm. But the way they unceremoniously dump him into this mass grave and then just unceremoniously shovel some lie on top of him, like that puff of that as compared to the wig powder earlier in the film, which we didn't hit on, but was a glorious indulgence scene with the backdrop of his requiem. And it just, so I came well done. very close to crying this time. I didn't, <laughs> I got lots of chills. I think I teared up a bit. It, I, I think I did tear up. So anyway, it, it's great. And now we cut back to the final bit with Salieri and a horrified-looking priest. I mean, the priest is obviously defeated because he knows that Salieri doesn't give a shit. <laughs> like, he I, knows. There's, it's actually, like, that performance is almost exclusively reaction, but there is such a great look of just horror on his face as he realizes, like, I'm talking to a crazy person who regrets none of his actions and basically just called me here because he felt like, people hadn't heard his story in a while and he wanted to say it like like again the reason he called the priest was like completely selfish it has nothing to do with actual guilt or feeling bad or no Mm -hmm. well and i honestly they kind of with, with the costuming in particular and like some of the red accents and such did position salieri as a 
uh, devil figure within this film, which I kind of love. It's like this archangel uh, foil to Mozart's, like... Well, if God is speaking through Mozart, then does the devil speak through Salieri? Exactly. And you can tell the priest knows. You can just tell. And this is where we get those glorious rantings about how he is the patron saint of the mediocrities. I love how even in recognizing his own mediocrity, he still has to put himself above. Oh, for sure. Because of the narcissism. It reminds me of the, there's a quote in Catch-22 that's like, even among the most mediocre of men, he was like more mediocre than the rest or something like that. It's the play on like- um, He was more equal than others, the animal farm thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's basically that. Yeah, where Salieri's like, he's not just like, I'm mediocre. He's like, well, I'm the patron saint of mediocrity. Like I'm the best at mediocrity. He still has to be the best, even if it's the best at being mediocre. Yeah, isn't that a fun phrase? I'm an exceptional mediocrity. I, actually, I thought about this phrase too at the end of that from in Die Hard when um, Hans Gruber, uh, Holly calls him a common thief and he goes, I'm an exceptional thief. <laughs> great ending. Great Such movie. a great ending and a great movie. I, I'm i very glad because I, had you seen this before? No, this is the first time I saw it. Same. And this was the film that when we got into the 80s and I tweeted out like, what's the one that we should be looking forward to? This was the one by far that most people said. And so I, I'm very happy to report that it lived up to the hype. I totally agree with that assessment. It's not at all what I expected, but was such a treat. And again, I, we didn't hit on this a lot, but the runtime on at least the director's cut was three full hours did not feel like it. Not at all. And so that's that's such a testament to the pacing, which I know we are a big stickler about on this podcast. Don't make me sit through things I don't need to. I needed to sit through all of that, and it was worth it. I love how we were even like, the director's cut, everything included in there needed to be included in there. Why was the theatrical version so short? Like, <laughs> Well, and I was, it's... Uh, don't I'm not going to take too much credit for this. I believe it was on like the Wikipedia where I was reading this. But the the cutting of all of that stuff out was very much a like, eh, we don't really want to make people sit through all this time, which such a respectful director. I'm like, I, I could get into this. I know, but I was like, but what if I wanted to sit through all of that time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with lists, this is criminally low in my list. And so I think... Maggie, we probably need to do a reevaluation of our choices. Let's, let's do it before we go into the 90s. I, I'm here for it. So for, for me, Amadeus is at tw number 12. Um, so really high in my list. But quite frankly, this feels like a top 10 movie for me. But I'll leave that for later. So I've slotted it one after it happened one night and one before The Sound of Music. So with Amadeus, um, there are definitely these comedic aspect to it, aspects to it. And it has... Really great performances, really great music. But again, It Happened One Night is a delight, and that's kind of a cop-out answer. But like the story there is pure, again, Ian, fun, and fulfilling. I am fed to the teeth with these elevated things. And I wouldn't call Amadeus elevated necessarily, but like in I all the best ways. All Wolfie the best would ways. approve. I think Wolfie would approve of It Happened One Night being above. Okay, well, we'll roll with it. Now, in terms of the the comparison with Sound of Music and Amadeus, like Sound of Music is a fantastic film. We have Julie Andrews at, 
I won't go so far as to say her peak, but like at the top of her game in that. But Amadeus has this complexity to it that you added with having Salieri in the story that you don't get from the Nazis in Sound of Music. So that kind of added complexity and interest and honestly different point of view, I think adds to this film in a way that I didn't get in Sound of Music. It's it's less of an external good versus evil and more of an internal good versus evil. Exactly. And those are the most interesting and insidious yeah. conflicts. So Yeah. So I also am slotting Amadeus in at number twelve. Yes. I, is this the first time we've matched? Since since like early days. When we only had done like two movies, Ian, I'm pretty sure our lists were identical. Are you sure I didn't <laughs> slot like Broadway Melody above, uh, I don't know, All Quiet on the Western Front? I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, I am absolutely positive. But no, I'm also putting it at number 12. It is actually one below Rebecca Ooh. for me. Um, I It has kind of similar vibes, I think. Rebecca, I just, the atmosphere is so incredible. But again, it, and you, but they're similar villains, actually. Danvers mm-hmm. is very Salieri-esque. Or Salieri is very Danvers-esque, whichever way you want to go with that. That psychological, um, like, double agent. Yeah. And the, like, weird sort of hatred and um, idealization of something, like, having these very twisted relationships. But the cinematography there is just... I, I'm a sucker for black and white cinematography. I've said it a million times. Like, I just... I love that with Rebecca. Um, also a great score. It is above The Lost Weekend, which I'm going to be perfectly honest, The Lost Weekend is too high on my list, but that movie spoke to me. And, but like, it should be. It should be for the, it should be. Do not apologize. It spoke to you. Yes, but other things are better. Like, okay, so what's below Lost, one below Lost Weekend? Then? Tom Jones, which also spoke to me in very different ways. I, Amadeus for me is also above Tom Jones. Tom I think Jones it's above Tom 14. Jones. It's also my number 14. Don't take that as me trying to say Tom Jones is not worth it. Like, no, honestly, anything in the top. Half I've of literally our list, recommended it to watch. every single person I've talked to since we've watched it. But I do have Amadeus as number twelve. I could see it being a little bit higher. I have some stuff in my like top ten where I'm like, yeah, we gotta knock that down a couple pegs. But like, I mean, it's up there. Like, I it's to me the thing that really puts it kind of above is that it's really showcasing what you can do with film. Mm-hmm. that I don't think you can do in other mediums with like the way they brought in the music and the editing and mostly those two bits like that. I, the structure of it where we're like going back and forth with like old Salieri, how they mix the narration. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm here for it. It's so good. So yeah, it's, it is, I, I realize that again, it is a time commitment, but it is a hundred percent worth it. I will Agreed. admit that I watched it in two sittings. But week, I, week. You know what? I had to pee, <laughs> and then I had to do laundry, and then I had to eat, and then it was bedtime. So, <laughs> worth it, like absolutely worth it, and Agreed. such a treasure to like hear all of this fantastic classical music, and apparently led to a bit of a resurgence in Salieri's music from what I was reading. So yeah. I think that is is great, honestly, because Salieri apparently was quite influential in the opera scene, even if uh, we don't remember his music in particular. His influence is pretty strong. 
So uh, definitely let us know your thoughts on Amadeus. Again, everyone who uh, said that this was the one that we were really going to enjoy and that we should look forward to, uh, you were right. Absolutely, 100%. Um, if you want to find us on Twitter so that you can give us more movies that we are going to be looking forward to in the future, you can find us at Best Pictures Pod. Uh, we are also at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram. Um, I think we're a little bit more active on the Twitter, though. You can also email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. Rate, subscribe, review, all of that. You guys know the drill. Of course. And next time, you know, we're in for a treat with... What? This might have been sarcastic. Out of Africa, which, I mean, Meryl Streep is in it. And Robert I'm, Redford. So, so I'm curious. I'm curious to see how we land on that one. I've heard it's very polarizing. But we do love both those actors. We do. And the way that I'm looking at it is... At the minimum, I get to watch Meryl Streep. So, and Robert Redford. At the so. minimum, acting should be good. Exactly. So. Whether the content is, we will see, given that it is based on a 1937 novel. <laughs> Those are very hit or miss. <laughs> yes. So, but yes, join us next time for Out of Africa. <laughs>